I'm going to speak to you this evening on Hebrews chapter 13, verse 5, at the very end of the verse. If you want to follow it in your own Bible, that's fine. Yes, it's fine. Hebrews 13, verse 5, the very end of the verse. He himself has said, I will never leave you, nor forsake you. Now, this verse, of course, is part of a very long letter. Nobody writes letters this long. Hebrews is a letter. Um, Twelve chapters of this letter have already taken place. And there's a few verses to follow this statement, and we call that the context, and I'm not going to say a word about the context. Because the apostle who's writing this doesn't say a word about the context. He is actually quoting from Deuteronomy twice, and Joshua once. He's quoting an Old Testament verse, And he says nothing about the context, and there's a deliberate reason for that. He wants the readers of this letter just to be faced with the bare promise. And I'm not going to say a a word about the context for the same reason. God doesn't want you to be distracted. He wants you to be confronted with the bare promise. So I'm asking you if this evening you'll be willing to drop every other thought for a moment and focus all your attention on this bare promise which says, I will never leave you nor forsake you. And I have five things to say. Now the first thing I have to say is it's, it, it's a promise. So I, I sat there in my office, my little office, and in front of me was my, my phone, and I do what I did, what I do 20, 30, 40, 50 times a day. I said, hey, Google. And it went boink. And then I said, well, what's a promise? And she said, A promise. I don't know where they get the voice from. A promise, she said, is a declaration or assurance that one will do something or that a particular thing will happen. This is a promise. It's a declaration. It's an assurance. It's something to make you sure that someone will do something or that a particular thing will happen. I think we'll just have to slightly alter the definition because actually this is a declaration, it's an assurance that someone will do something and that a particular thing won't happen. It's a promise. Now, the value you put on a promise depends on who makes the promise. And that's why some politicians succeed and some politicians fail. All politicians make promises. Some people believe the promises and because that person has some credit in their eyes. 
and some people don't believe the promises. Um, a promise has no value if the person who's giving the promise is not reliable. And of course, the value you put on a promise is, depends on what's promised. If I promise I'll meet you at 12 o'clock tomorrow and we'll have lunch together, um, you might be willing to take that seriously. I haven't promised that, by the way, but, but if I promise I'll meet you at 12 o'clock tomorrow and we'll have lunch together, and during the lunch I'll write you a check for, um, <clears throat> shall we say, £100,000, I think uh, you probably wouldn't take that promise very seriously. This is a promise, and that's what we need to explore. So that's point number one. It's a promise. We're face to face this evening with a bare promise. Number two, so who is making this promise? Because listen to what the apostle says. He himself has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So who is the he himself? Is it God the Father? Is it God the Son? Is it God the Holy Spirit? The question is a waste of time. Whenever you deal with God, you deal with God. If you're dealing with the Son, you're dealing with the Father and the Spirit. If you're dealing with the Spirit, you're dealing with the Son and the Father. If you're dealing with the Father, you're dealing with the Son and the Spirit. There are, there are three distinct persons in the Godhead, but they are not separable. So the Father is not the Son, the Son is not the Father. The, the Son is not the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit is not the Father. They are distinct. Only he begets, only he is begotten, only he proceeds. But he is all of God, he is all of God, and he is all of God. But there are not three gods, there's only one God, and God's being is baffling, and when you deal with God, you deal with God. And whatever God does, it's the Father who does it through the Son by the means of the Spirit. That's the way he always works. So it's a promise from God. And that's why the promise is worth listening to. Because God can and does make good on his promises. He has the power to do that. He's God. And he's a God of truth and without iniquity. He said, I am the truth and he is the spirit of truth. This great God cannot lie. He's not a man. So here is a promise of immeasurable grandeur which cannot ever let you down. It's a promise and there we've seen who's making the promise. Number three, what is he promising? He himself has said, 
I will never leave you nor forsake you. So mum takes the little child to the nursery for the very first time. <laughs> You've been through this. And then mum leaves. And the child is heartbroken because the child doesn't understand that mum is leaving, but she's not forsaking. But as the child grows and as habits develop, mum says, I'm leaving you now. And the child is quite happy because the child knows that although it's being left, it's not being forsaken. And when nursery is over, mum will be there or dad or granddad or great aunt Betty or somebody will be there anyway. Um, the, the child's not being abandoned. Dad goes off to work and before he says, before he goes, he says to his family, hopefully still having breakfast, he says, I'm leaving now, and nobody panics. He's leaving, but he's not forsaking. He'll be back for tea. But the Lord here says, I will never leave you nor forsake you. And he does it in the most extraordinary manner, the way he says it. Now, we go down the police station where a man is suspected of a crime and is being questioned by the police officers. And they say, what do you know about this? And he says, I don't know nothing. That's terrible English, isn't it? It's a double negative. He should be smacked around and locked up and three, the key thrown away for a double negative, don't you agree? Then they said, you were seen on such and such a road at such a time. And he says, I never went nowhere. No, he's doubled his crime. That's another double negative. You can't use a double negative unless you mean it to be a positive. Did you learn that in school? Did you learn it at home? Well, you're learning it in church, sorry about that. You can't have a double negative. Yes, you can. The Greek says here, he himself has said, I will not, not leave you. That's a double negative. And it's followed by a treble negative. Nor, not, not forsake you. And the great God who breathes infallibly scripture says, all you folk who are afraid of a double negative, here's five of them. Four knots and one nor. Why does he do that? Why does, the, why does God break all the rules of the language which he's chosen to speak in? Because he wants to stress something in a way which could not be stressed in any other way. There will never be a time in your life, says the promise, when I'm not right there with you. There will never be an experience through which you pass when I am not there, right there, 
with you. Think of time. You're a child, you're an adolescent, you're, a, you're an adult, you leave home, you marry, you have 2.4 children, according to the statistics. You retire, you wither, you die. Does the, no, the promise is valid. And in that time span, you go through all sorts of experiences. There's joys, there's difficulties, there's disappointments, there's misunderstandings, there's bereavements, there's failures, there's successes, you name it. There's needs, there's surprises, there are pleasures, there are heartbreaks. He himself has said, I will not, not leave you, nor not, not forsake you. No, never alone, said the old chorus. Do you remember it, some of you? No, never alone. He promised never to leave me, never to leave me alone. That's what he's promising. So it's a promise. So who is making this promise? What is he promising? That's we know. Now, number four. I suppose out of the five points I have, this is probably my favorite. Who is he promising this to? Well, some of you are not Christians, not yet. So you will go through your childhood and your adolescence and your adulthood and your marriage and your retirement and your senior years and your last breath alone. You don't really want that, do you? You'll be alone. And although you say, I'll be with my mates in eternity. Yes, but you'll, you'll be alone because the image of God will be stripped away from every unconverted person and therefore there'll be no such thing as company or trust or fellowship or atmosphere or family feeling or mateiness. Um, None of that. You'll just be alone. Alone. So who is he promising this to? He himself has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. Well, in the old Bible it says, I will never leave thee nor forsake thee. That's important. My wife and I once were asked to go to Yorkshire to give advice to a, an elderly couple who were bringing up their very young grandson. Uh, the boy wasn't there when we arrived and we talked for some time to the granddad and the grandma 
And then the, the boy came in, he was about 10 or 11, and the granddad said, where's thou been, lad? Which in English is, where hast thou been, lad? And there are parts of Yorkshire today which still use that. Thee and thou. When they're talking to you as an individual, it's thou and thee. But when they're talking to yous, as we say in the, <laughs> as a plural, it's your and you. It's like that in Welsh. It's like that in French. It's like that in Italian. And I'm going to throw out a guess now. It's like that in Romanian. Yes, it is. And it's like that in Greek. I will never leave you, individual. Individual who? Individual Christians. This book is written to Christians. Christians who believe that there is no one greater in time or eternity than Jesus Christ, who's the express image of the invisible God. Christians who believe that Christ is the perfect prophet through whom all truth comes, and the perfect priest whose sacrifice on the cross is sufficient for every, every person who trusts it. Christians, men who believe, and women and boys and girls who believe that Jesus Christ is king and that he reigns over everything. And they've thrown themselves into his care. They've jumped into his arms. They've wept with shame for the years that they've neglected him. They've broken their hearts over his laws that they've broken. They've got nowhere else to go with their tears. And they throw themselves into the care of Jesus Christ because there is nowhere else to go. And the promise is, I will never leave thee nor forsake thee. But there's more to be said than that. These Hebrew Christians were now failing Christians. Some of them were doubting that the Christian faith was true. Some of them were doubting whether it was worth all the trouble and hassle that you get when you become a Christian. So they were actually thinking of giving it all up and going back to what they were before. Lots of them had already started staying away from church services and weren't identifying anymore with the Lord's people. And they were, they were a mess. Christians who were not meditating on the Bible, who were not praying, who didn't care now whether they sinned or whether they didn't, I will never leave thee nor forsake thee is a promise for Christians who are rubbish.
God doesn't make promises like this because we are good. He makes promises like this because he is good. We call it grace. And the worst Christian in the world, which may be me and it may be you, something will happen to them. It will. The moment that they really understand that the eternal God, who through his Son bled for them, is never going to turn his back on them. or even leave them on their own for a second in all of life's times and in all of life's experiences. This year could not possibly be the same as last year if you seriously take hold of the promise. So it's a promise. Who's making it? What's he promising? Who's he promising it to? Finally, number five, how does all this work out in the reality of daily life? Tomorrow's Monday, bank holiday, after Monday comes Tuesday, normal day. Schools go back soon. And then it's just the normal rhythm of your and my little life. How does all this flesh out in, in my ordinary life? Well, this is what we must all grasp. The promise stands. Whatever you may have to go through in your daily life, the promise stands. On all the days when you think God has forgotten his promise, the promise stands. If you never had any other indication ever that God was with you, this would be enough. The promise stands. We walk by faith, not by sight. The promise stands for every Christian. The promise stands for every Christian at every moment. The promise stands for every Christian at every moment in every situation. The promise stands for every Christian at every moment, in every situation, everywhere. But that said, there's something you may not know. Your Heavenly Father loves playing hide-and-seek. I probably can guess that everybody in this uh, room this evening has played hide-and-seek 
It can be an exciting game, don't you think? And it can be one of the worst games in the world. Uh, you have those really annoying days, don't you, when you play hide-and-seek, and there's the person who's gone off to hide, you, you just can't find them. Five minutes goes by, you still can't find them. Ten minutes, half an hour, now everybody's tired of the game now, but you, you, you still can't find them. And then suddenly a voice says, here I am. And there they are, right in the place where you are. But you didn't see them. God loves that. The promise stands. But he's very kind, you know. And every now and again, God does something in your life and it's like he's saying to you, here I am. And it's just like a, a reminder that he's been there all along. But because we're not very good at walking by faith, every now and again he gives us just a little, a little glimpse. Here I am. Uh, we can find literally dozens of examples of this in the Bible. But most of them don't apply to us. Uh, for example, here's one that doesn't apply to us. Uh, here's Moses. Moses has been given a promise from God that he, Moses, will be God's instrument to bring out of slavery the people of Israel who are enslaved in Egypt. He gets that promise and then everything goes wrong and for the last 40 years Moses has been a shepherd looking after a few sheep out in, the, out in the desert. He knows every rock, every hill, every sand dune, every weed, every bush, every plant. He's seen it all before. For 40 years, he's been looking after these few sheep in this situation, and God appears nowhere. Wait, wait a minute. That bush looks uh, a bit different today. I've seen it hundreds of times. But it's, it's burning. Well, that's not that unusual in the desert. But it's, it, it's not burning away. I'd better go and have a look at that and, and see what, what's going on. Moses... Moses, do not draw near this place, for the place where you are standing is holy ground. Take your sandals off your feet. And there in the desert, where he's been for 40 years, he hears the voice of Christ and has a vision a physical vision of an aspect of his glory. Here I am, but that doesn't apply to me and that doesn't apply to you. That's what we call a, a theophany or a Christophany. It's a, 
It's an appearance of Jesus Christ in Old Testament days before he actually came amongst us in a true human nature. We don't have that anymore. We don't have even visions of Christ anymore. There's nobody here who's seen Christ. That's why the New Testament says, whom having not seen, you believe and rejoice with joy unspeakable and full of glory. Last of all, says the apostle, he was seen by me. Not even John saw Christ on the Isle of Patmos. Not a physical vision of Christ. He saw a prophetic vision, and we're not prophets. But God nonetheless has times where he says, here I am, and it's not a theophany, and it's not a prophetic vision. For example... Abraham says to his unnamed servant, my son Isaac is, needs a wife. And all the girls around here, they're, they're just an ungodly bunch. Just go off to the city from which I came originally and find a godly girl that Isaac can marry. And the servant with some other servants and camels laden with all sorts of treasures goes off and this man's just got one mission, find a godly wife for Isaac. He arrives at the, the, the named city at, and it's, there's a well on the edge of the city and the ladies of the city are coming out to, with their water pots and he's thirsty and he prays and says, Lord, if I ask one of these girls for a drink and she says, yes, you could, here's a drink, and while I'm at it, I'll, I'll put some water in the troughs for your camels as well. Oh, Lord, let her be the one. So a, a beautiful girl, a really beautiful girl, comes, comes down and he says, please give me a drink. And she says, sure. And while he's drinking the drink, she says, um, while, I'm, while you're having that drink, um, I'll put some water in the troughs and... Water your camels as well. <laughs> then the man bowed down his head and worshipped the Lord. And he said, Blessed be the Lord God of my master Abraham, who has not forsaken his mercy and his truth towards my master. As for me being on the way, the Lord led me to the house of my master's brethren. And the experience of saying, Lord, please, and then it happens, was one of those here I am moments. But he didn't see anything, but he saw a lot. Here I am, God loves it. So Joseph is going to be murdered by his brothers. For various reasons, they change their mind and said they just sell him down the river. They literally they sell him and he goes off to Egypt as a slave where he's sold again. He's a godly young man of integrity and he's, he's promoted 
and then everything goes wrong again and he ends up in jail and he's there a long time and he's a star prisoner and widely trusted because he's such an honest fellow and yes he does interpret the dream of Pharaoh's butler and Pharaoh's baker and then he just languishes in the prison and where is God pray? But then Pharaoh has a dream. <laughs> the, the butler remembers and suddenly Joseph is prime, prime minister. And not long afterwards, there's his murderous brothers at his feet asking for food. And he tries to lead them to a repentant position. And then Joseph said to his brothers, please come near to me. And they came near. And he said, I am Joseph, your brother, whom you sold into Egypt. But now, do not therefore be grieved or angry with yourselves, because you sold me here, for God sent me before you to preserve life. For these two years the famine has been in the land, and there are still five years in which there will be neither ploughing nor harvesting. And God sent me before you to preserve a posterity for you in the earth and to save your lives by a great deliverance. So now it was not you who sent me here, but God. And in that extraordinary event, he sees it all now. Now, here's the question. Was God more with him on the day he said that to his brothers than he was in all the years that he was in prison? No! The promise stands! But God in his kindness just every now and again lifts the veil and just, just reminds us that <laughs> the promise really is true. He just lets us have a little peep here I am. So Paul is in a courthouse. The judge is the emperor. The outcome will be either Paul is freed or fined or banished or killed. Paul is given the opportunity to defend himself against the charges made against him. And he's the loneliest man in the world. There are hundreds in the courthouse. There is Caesar. And he looks around at the public galleries. And there's not one, not one single Christian who's come along to give him moral support. There's no hymns playing in the background. There's no piped music. There's no comfortable situation. He's the loneliest man in the world. There's nobody on his side because the default position is you're probably guilty. And then, as he begins to speak, he feels strangely strong. 
and he speaks with a fluency and with a power and with a conviction which so quells the court that eventually the hearing has to be suspended and resumed at a later date. And hundreds of Gentiles who would never have heard the gospel otherwise hear it clearly, plainly, powerfully, affectionately. At my first defense, he writes in 2 Timothy, nobody stood with me. May the Lord not lay it to their charge. But the Lord stood with me. So that these people who would never hear the gospel otherwise heard it. He didn't see a vision. He didn't hear a voice. But something happened. Here I am. So Spurgeon, the great preacher of Victorian days, um, one of the most famous people in the country, and one of the, certainly one of the most famous in the then British Empire, has a terrible problem, and it's weighing him down. He talks about it in one of his sermons. He doesn't tell us what the problem was, but it appears to have been something probably legal. And he can't concentrate on preparing his sermons, and, and he's, he's going ahead with his pastoral visits, but he, he's, all he can think about is this, this terrible problem, and there is no answer to it that he can work out. So he gets in a handsome cab, and by a cab I don't mean one with a diesel engine, I mean one with a horse at the front and a, and a man, and, and he goes on his next pastoral visit, which is somewhere in the south of London, and to his surprise the taxi driver takes him down a side street, which is not the normal way of go getting to his destination. And as he goes down the side street, there on the pavement, he writes, is the only man in all England who can solve my problem. So the taxi stops, Spurgeon gets out, he talks to the man, the whole thing is resolved, and God has said, hasn't he? Here I am. Have you ever had coincidences like that in your life? Coincidences. Going back to Spurgeon, he says, coincidences is a pretty word for boys to play with. There's no coincidences in the Christian life. There's all these little things that happened and then you're suddenly awed by the fact that the promise stands that then God just reminds you that, yes, he really is there all the time. He really is. I'm going to finish shortly, but I, I, a couple of things I think, think I ought to say before we finish. Wednesday night prayer meetings can be very ordinary. 
is God really there? Is he really listening? In Belvedere Road Church in the 1970s, we had a very ordinary prayer meeting. But in Lebanon, there was a terrible civil war going on and so-called Christians were murdering Muslims and Muslims were murdering so-called Christians. And one of our men from Belvedere was in Lebanon, Jonathan Jack, and he was a teacher there and we knew he had got out safely so he wasn't in danger. But he had befriended a young Egyptian who was living in Lebanon called Victor Atala. And together, the two of them with another man had started the Lebanon Reformed Fellowship so that the great doctrines of grace would be preached in Lebanon. And there was no news of Victor Atala. And Christians, and especially Christian leaders, were being murdered all over the place. So in that very ordinary prayer meeting, we prayed for Victor Atala. Don and I walked home up to Dovey Street as we turned the corner into the street. She said, there's people outside our front door. And sure enough, there were three. One of whom was Victor Atala. <laughs> However did you get here? He said, well, we decided we'd get out while we could and we'd go to Syria. But on the way, we were arrested by a roadblock of Muslim militia. I said, well, how did you get out? Well, it's a bit difficult. He said, the, Victor said, they, they took me out to shoot me. They asked me my name and they said, that's not, in a, that's not a Muslim name. And uh, they took me across a field to shoot me. There were three or four of them with their rifles and one of them said, are you Victor Atala? And Victor said, yes. I know you, he says. You probably can't re remember me, but he said, but we were in school together in Egypt. We can't shoot him. So they didn't. So there he was on the doorstep on that Wednesday night, <laughs> half an hour after we'd prayed for him. Now then, does God listen to prayers every Wednesday night? Did he listen to prayers more that night than other nights? But just to remind us that he is always there and that prayers really are heard. Sometimes we have these moments there's no visions, there's no voices, but there's the certain assurance that here I am. I think that's one of the things which makes the Christian life an adventure, don't you? You might go years without having an experience like that, Moses did. But we have them, don't we? Some people have them when they're dying. Some Christians die in pain. Some Christians die in sleep. Some Christians die in flitting in and out of consciousness. And some Christians, just to remind us all, 
that he's still with us and his rod and his staff are comforting us, just to remind us all that the promise really does stand, they have here I am experiences. Some of you will remember David Jebson, who was the superintendent of Liverpool City Mission. He was very ill for six months before he died. Eventually he was in a hospice, very, very weak, strong in faith, but very weak. Then he passed into a in and out and in and out and in and out of consciousness. And then he suddenly sat up and said, Oh! And died. What do you think he saw? All I know is, he himself has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you.